This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I love a segment where we talk about things that people can that you that, that we can prevent them from doing. Yeah, five mistakes. Pitfalls. Yeah, pitfalls, yeah. mistakes, all that kind of stuff. Um, and and this is a, a segment that's about what not to do mm-hmm. when you're taking charge of your finances. So the bells have been going off. You've been hitting yourself in the head with the hammer, going, "Okay, I got to do something. I got to do it now." This is what you don't do. And often these are the things that you think you should. Right. And somebody will say, oh, yeah, of course you should do that. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, go for it. We're saying, well, stop, think twice about it, Uh, at least hear what we have to say about a lot of years of client experience. These are things that people often say, oh, I wish I hadn't done that because it complicates things later and doesn't generally solve the problem. Okay. Let's let's talk about a couple of the the tactics that we consider that we possibly shouldn't. Yeah, so number one, that's the most heartbreaking thing that I ever see, and I see it less now than it a few years ago, but still it happens, is when people are facing a debt problem and they've saved RRSPs their whole life, maybe they've got a whole big nest egg set up there in RRSPs, quite often they'll start to cash in those RRSPs to pay their debts. And you say one of the things that we need to do individually is, you know, have a savings, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Save some money, put some money aside, but... I mean, it's important to do that into an RRSP for sure, Mm -hmm. but that's not what you're talking about. No. So what I'm saying is, you know, not the saving money part. That's the great part. But it's saying, oh, my God, I've got these credit card bills. I've got this line of credit. Something's happened. I'm not able to pay it off. And often the collection agent or even the bank's financial advisor will say, well, you've got all this money sitting in RRSPs, don't you? Oh, yeah, I do. Well, why don't you cash that in to pay us off? And, you know, then that'll make us go away. And they're right, it will make the debt go away, but my God, what the person's done there, it's a double whammy. So first off, what they're not aware of, and often what they're not told, is that they could never be forced to cash in those RRSPs. So even if they had to file for a bankruptcy, the only thing they would have to lose out of those RRSPs is just whatever they've contributed in the last 12 months. And most of the time, if you're in a debt situation, you stop contributing to your RRSPs. So the vast majority of cases, 100% dollar for dollar of RRSPs could be retained even if the person had to file for bankruptcy. But if they don't know that, there's no protection. If you cash in your RRSPs yourself and hand the money to over to your creditors, you've just given them access to an asset that they should never have been entitled to. If you think about it like a company pension plan, most people would know you can't suddenly cash in your pension plan to deal with a short-term debt. And why would you want to? Obviously, you want that to live for the rest of your life. Well, RRSPs, you should think about them exactly the same way. Even though you have the option to cash them in, I've never seen a situation where it's the right answer to do so to pay debts. And where I said there's a double whammy, so, you know, the first part of it is you don't have the money there for retirement, and oftentimes it doesn't solve the debt problem anyway because you've still got some issues there. But the second part of that is the income tax hit. So a lot of people don't plan on this, that when they cash in the RRSPs, they're not going to get 100% of what they requested. The government or the the financial institution is going to hold back some portion for taxes, but it's often not enough. So at the end of that tax year, maybe the person's cashed in their RRSPs, they paid off their debt, they're feeling 
feeling pretty good. And then suddenly they get hit with a big tax bill from the government because they got to pay tax on the money they pulled in from those RRSPs. Yeah, really important to remember. Yeah. So if you're any of the listeners, if you're hearing anybody in your personal life that's saying, oh, I'm going to cash in RRSPs to pay this off, you know, not saying don't do it, but don't do it unless you understand fully all the situations, all the protections. And it'd be news to me if there's a good situation where you should be cashing in RRSPs. I just haven't seen it. Now, the next one, it's, it seems, again, like a natural thing to do. Not mm-hmm. a, and not, It's not about asking somebody to co-sign the loan. It's about being asked to co-sign the loan. Mm-hmm. If I'm able to help you in some way, absolutely, I'm going to do that. Whatever you need. And I'm just co-signing, right? Yeah. I mean, what harm? how much harm can that cause? But I know that you have a, a very strong position on this. Yeah. And, th- and this comes just from years of having people in my office and, you know, going down the list of debts and saying, yeah, I can help you with X, Y, Z, so on and so forth. I can help you with all these debts. But then they tell me, oh, well, you know, my mom, my dad, my brother, somebody um, co-signed on this debt. And what does that mean for the person who co-signed? Well, what it means is when I tell these other people they're not getting paid back, that's the end of the story. They've got no other pockets to dig into. But when I tell the person who you've co-signed the debt with your parents for, well, what they're going to do is go to your parents and say, okay, we want 100% of the debt back right away. The person has breached the terms of the agreement. So almost always the discussion that I have with individuals is, well, the person who co-signed, they never thought they'd have to pay off 100% of the debt. They thought at most it's 50-50. Well, no, it's 100% of the debt. It's joint and several liability. And the second part too is they didn't think they'd have to pay anything ever. They just did this, you know, as a matter of trying to help you out, to help you get approved. You intended on making all the payments, but you know what? Life can intervene. Mm -hmm. So if you want to talk about difficult emotional situations Mm -hmm. when you're letting somebody down that you have to deal with for the rest of your life where you've asked them to co-sign, if you ever have to deal with your other debts, they're going to be left paying off 100% of that debt. So in every experience that I've seen, the person, if they had not gotten that co-signer, it might have forced them to actually take steps earlier to deal with their financial situation, but they would have been better off having done that because it would have only involved them. It wouldn't have involved other family members or friends or people who put their name on the dotted line. Yeah, regardless of the action that they take, whether it's a bankruptcy or consumer proposal, it's not going to include them. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, this is just another great reason why uh, you want to make that appointment, go see somebody at Sands and Associates, yeah. any of the staff to say, okay, this is my situation, what should I do? Yeah, and even if you're thinking about getting a co-signed debt, you, know, you can come in and ask us about that as well. We can tell you examples where, okay, be aware if this happens, so on and so forth. Eyes wide open, make whatever decision you want. But sometimes you can be really pushed into there. And sometimes it's at the 11th hour, you're ready to sign off on the financing. And the bank manager says, oh, you know what? We've just got one extra hurdle. We actually need to get a co-signer on this. And you haven't thought about it, but you don't want this to go sideways. So it's the last thing you do is to put the co-signer on. And it's the most important, impactful thing that you did the whole time. Yeah. Okay, let's go into a a couple of more um, things that people shouldn't do, but they're almost given an opportunity to, and it kind of makes sense. So at least I'm doing something. Yeah. That minimum payment thing. Oh, exactly. The minimum payment trap, the minimum payment hamster wheel, whatever you want to call it. Um, But you hit it right in the head there, Elaine. You're doing something. You're paying minimums each month. And you're being rewarded for it because your credit rating is probably great. You know, you go online, free credit score. Oh my God, it's good. I'm making my minimum payments every month. Never mind that you got twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars of debt, but your credit score looks great because you're not delinquent. And the credit card companies actually suggesting, right? Mm-hmm. You, if you make this, yeah. you know, 
We'll, we'll just continue on. Oh, yeah. So it's not like I'm making up the number that I'm paying. No. That $10 or $15 oh. or whatever it is. Yeah, no, exactly. And it, it's that absurdly low that some of the major banks, well, you might be paying $200 on your minimum, but $10 of that is what's actually reducing the principal. The rest is interest, charges, things like that. Um, so the numbers get scary really quickly. You know, if it was 18% interest, which is pretty standard, even if it was a debt of $1,000, you can be looking at a 10-year calendar to pay that off just at the minimums. And you can imagine how many times you would have paid the debt over, probably four or five times over, you would pay that $1,000 over a 10-year period. It's just not right that they state that on there. I know they've taken measures to explain that, that yeah, if you pay this, it'll take you Mm -hmm. this period of time to pay it off. I get that. And, And kudos to them for doing that. But they should actually just I mean, it just, it's just not right. Yeah. Well, what'll be interesting, and let's all stay tuned, is what Quebec's doing. So we talked about that a few months ago there. I remember, yeah. Quebec is saying, well, the minimum payment has to be 5% of the statement balance. Right. So that's a lot more than 10 bucks. So 5%, that turns credit cards into a 20-month payment plan. I'm okay with that, a 20-month payment plan for credit cards. I'm not okay with a 20-year or a 200-year. Right. Um, so I think it'll be fascinating as that gets implemented in Quebec and see how things change or not. Do you remember the date that that was being implemented? I, or I, I, And then there's a period of time that we have to wait and see how it yeah, all Yeah, it was early up. August was when it came into effect here. Okay, so, yeah. so this time next year, we'll be able to talk a little bit further about it and see what kind of impact it did have, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> they'll either be really happy to tell us or not share anything about it. Well, who knows, but I don't see it as a negative thing, but I can imagine some people are going to have a shock if they thought new credit cards will work the same as the old and the new ones are requiring one twentieth of the balance every month as opposed to one one thousandth or whatever it works oh, out to be. Oh, good point. Right? See, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. I was thinking it would be a universal, everybody falls under this category, but that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, there's going to be transitions. Absolutely. So, yeah. um, now, there's a lot of good, well-meaning people out there in the world that want to help you with your debt and help you figure things out. And uh, and then there's some people who are, you know, sort of ready to take advantage of you. Yeah. And I think, I think it's an important point about where you're getting your advice from and your information from. Yeah. So, it, you know, my, my doctor says, you know, his biggest rival is Dr. Google. And it's not, <laughs> not a good rival to have. You know, you, I you use st- Dr. Google, by the uh-huh. way. <laughs> you start with blurred vision and suddenly everyone's dying the next day type, type right. of thing. Uh, a lot of the same can happen with your debt. So you really got to be careful. You know, you can go down rabbit holes online, message boards, things, and you'll find some truth, but a whole lot of obfuscation there. But also, even if you're sitting across from a professional you really need to make sure it's the right professional to help you and they don't have a conflict of interest. If you're dealing with a credit counselor that's funded by the banks, which not-for-profit credit counselors are funded by the banks, their objectives are completely different than yours. Their objective is to get 100% of the debt back and they can't reduce the amounts that you owe. When you sit down with a trustee, my objective as an officer of the court is to explain the rules to you, make sure you stay within those rules, but I've got no beholdenness to anybody to try to get you to pay back more or less or whatever. I want to work out something that's fair and reasonable as an impartial, unbiased professional. So if you're dealing with a trustee, you've got that protection, that code of ethics, all that expertise. If you're dealing with a credit counselor or a bank employee uh, or even a collection agent, sometimes collection agents will play good cop, bad cop and really try to, to give you the impression they're helping you out, whereas usually they're giving you counseling that makes them way better off at your expense. You're not doing the right thing for you or for your overall situation. 
I think the, the one of, and the last one is I think sometimes the most important one is that we talk about all the physical things and the 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 formal things that one can do when you get yourself into debt and you can take action and you can do this and this is da 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 da, but the emotional toll mm-hmm. that it takes on folks is sometimes unbearable. And yeah. I know that I know that you see that when people come in your door mm-hmm. to try to figure out um, what their next step should be and. It must be extraordinary when you get to help them and they they realize how much stress they've actually put themselves under. Yeah, so I think that the mistake is just, you know, carrying everything themselves, not reaching out for help. And yeah, I see people coming into the first meeting, they don't know what they're walking into, they're hunched over, you can tell their heartbeat's going through the roof type of thing. But then as soon as they can understand, okay, there's a professional here to help you, you can now start to unload some of these things that you've been carrying. The transformation is just remarkable. People can suddenly get better jobs, earn more money, have better personal relationships, because they didn't realize exactly how much being in debt is holding them back. Something that's always there on your mind, you're not sleeping, you're not eating, you just feel hopeless about it. Um, I have nobody leaving my meetings with a hopeless sense. They've got an idea of what they can do to move forward. Sometimes it's a little bit of work, sometimes it's easier than others, but to at least have a plan and to have someone working with you, that can make all the difference in eliminating the debt stress. There also seems to be this thing that we, we should automatically know how to do this stuff. Mm. And we, we didn't get the, you know, unless you took unless you took economics or you studied it, you yeah. don't you don't get all the information. Well, and Elaine, I took economics and I took accounting and all that. I had no idea about this until I became a trustee. So the average person, I don't think it's a failing. They don't know this. They just don't. If you want to book your confidential free debt consultation, call Sands & Associates. Here's their number, 1-800-661-3030, or go to their website, chock full of good information. It's sands-trustee.com. This segment is, we're comparing two very important key pieces for you if you're think if you're in debt and you want to take some action and you're not too sure. It's about consolidating with a consumer proposal versus credit counseling. Um, so what's the difference to between consolidating a debt with a consumer proposal or getting in one of those credit counseling programs. Um, consumer proposal or doing getting into the program two ways of settling debts that don't require you to borrow money, which is probably one of the things that makes them most attractive. Uh, Blair's going to talk about the differences between the two. Um, but can we talk about first, Blair, how similar they are? Because there is some similarities. Oh, definitely, Elaine. So I think focusing there can can make a lot of sense because sometimes people get the remedies confused because they're similar enough to be confusing, but they're so different in some of the really powerful aspects and, you know, even how much they're going to cost you that it's definitely worth understanding how how they're similar and how they are different as well. So in terms of what's common between a consumer proposal and working with a credit counseling plan, so both are debt management options and they're alternatives to consolidation loans and alternatives to filing for personal bankruptcy. So they're meant to save you if the bank won't help you with a consolidation loan or you can't afford it and you're worried about you know um, the worst case scenario if you happen to file for bankruptcy these are your methods to restructure your debts without going into bankruptcy so both consumer proposals and a credit counseling debt management plan are going to help you to consolidate your debts into one settlement without having to borrow any new funds they're going to allow you up to five years to make payments that's the maximum duration and it can certainly be shorter than that 
They're going to give you some type of education and resources to help build on your money management skills, whether it's budgeting, credit rebuilding, um, all of those things. You're going to get some education during the process. Uh, it's not a factory for you to have great credit score or a poor credit score or a long credit history or just a brand new person. You don't need to qualify uh, from a credit score point of view to do either a proposal or to start a, a credit counseling debt management plan. Um, and in terms of the credit rating impact, they're remarkably similar. So anytime you restructure your debts and you don't pay them off in full, there's a notation that goes on your credit bureau. And in both a credit counseling plan and a consumer proposal, that typically lasts for two to three years following the completion. Of the program. You're not stopped from seeking new credit during that time, but it means if someone pulls a credit bureau on you, they're going to see that you're in either a credit counseling plan or a consumer proposal for that period of time. Okay. So are there some differences then? Do you do you want to talk about those at this point? Yeah, I think that that's really important. So in terms of what's a huge difference between credit counseling and consumer proposal um, is in a credit counseling plan, when you're working with a credit counselor, it's not administered by a trustee. And anyone that listens to our show, they know for sure a trustee is empowered by the federal government. We can help to reduce debt. We can force creditors to accept the lower amount than what they might like if the other creditors want that, want that settlement. So we've got a lot of extra powers. If you're doing a credit counseling plan, you are paying back 100 percent of the debts that the plan can include and so it can't include all of your debts it can't include government debts like a trustee can help with but in a credit counseling plan you're going to pay back a hundred percent of the debt um, but you're generally going to save on the interest so if you owe twenty thousand dollars for example you're going to pay back twenty thousand dollars but there won't be any extra interest or fees charged upon that that contrasts significantly with a consumer proposal where it's a question of how much can you afford to pay back so in most cases, people are offering 30 to 50% of the total amount. So in the $20,000 example, you might be offering back $6,000 or $10,000, for example, and that's in full and final settlement of your entire indebtedness. So where they were sounding similar before, okay, both consolidate your debts, both give you, you know, no interest in time to pay off. It's a huge difference in that a consumer proposal can probably save you at least half or maybe two-thirds or more of the debt, where a credit counseling plan, that's just not an option. You will pay back 100% of the debt, but you'll get a little bit more time to do so and at no interest. So if your interest has already been uh, peaked in terms of your situation, give Sands & Associates a call. It's very easy to do. I'm going to give you the 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030, and set up that first call and see if uh, see if they can give you a hand or at least even trying to figure out your situation and, and the, best, uh, the best step to take next. Um, the other big thing that I found really interesting, I remember when we first started doing this, is that a licensed insolvency trustee is federally regulated by law. You have to follow so many rules and regulations mm -hmm. to be able to do your job versus pretty much everybody else, right? Well, that's right. So, you know, even a credit counselor, again, they might be, you know, very experienced or, or things like that, but there's no formal accreditation that says, you know, suddenly this person can call themselves a credit counselor, for example. Uh, federal law says you can only call yourself a licensed insolvency trustee if you've been granted that license by the government. Otherwise, it's an indictable offense. It's a very serious thing, and you're not going to go around saying you're a trustee when you're not. Uh, and that's the reason for that is, again, just the power that a trustee has um, to essentially bind creditors to a settlement, to give people access to federal law, where everything that a credit counselor does, it's based on an informal agreement with, or with individual creditors. So when a 
credit counseling settlement, as we said, you're going to pay back 100% of the debt. The credit counselor is going to try to negotiate um, the interest freeze with all of your creditors, but there might be some creditors that just opt out. They say, well, no, we're not agreeing to an interest freeze. No, we're not going to agree to back off and not sue this person. You know, by what authority can you force me to accept no interest for the next five years? And the credit counselor says, well, I've got no authority. I'm just trying to, you know, do best efforts to get a good deal here. So there are cases where people are in credit counseling plans and they're still being sued and they're still being collected against. There are certain creditors, government being one for income taxes and for student loans, they will never work with a credit counseling plan. So if that's part of your situation, you're not going to be well served by only sorting out the debts that can be included in in a credit counseling plan uh, versus having to deal with some on your own. There's a huge difference with that with a consumer proposal. So because it's a formal remedy, it's supervised by a trustee, it's based on federal law. um, First off, we can bind creditors to to the settlement. And what I mean by that is we don't need everybody to agree. So for a consumer proposal to succeed, all we need is 50% by dollar value of the people who are owed money to say yes. And we get that in about 95 to 99% of the cases when we file a consumer proposal. So the example I gave earlier of someone who owes $20,000, as soon as we have $10,001 of that person's debt that say, yes, we will accept a consumer proposal for 30 cents on the dollar, the balance of that debt, the other $9,990 or $99, um, they are forced to accept that same 30 cents on the dollar. Even if it's the government, they can't opt out. They can't take any action against you. So it's something that all you need is a majority in value that wants to work with you. And you have a consumer proposal that's going to work with all of your debts, uh, including the government debt. So that's just hugely powerful. So it's the ability to get all the creditors on side. And then again, that ability to reduce the debt to what you can afford. So not 100 cents in the dollar, probably closer, you know, 20 to 40 cents, 30 to 50, something like that. And the reason why a trustee can do that is a trustee shows a comparison to each of the creditors that says, you know, as a federal officer, I've reviewed the entire situation. And if this person were to file for bankruptcy, you creditor are going to get back five or 10 cents on the dollar maximum. And that's the person's option. They could file for bankruptcy and there's nothing the creditor can do about it. Here's the win-win. Here's the win to you creditors. They're going to offer you back 20 or 30 cents on the dollar. And the win to the individual is they don't have to file for bankruptcy. So a trustee can present those scenarios, work with the creditors to get them on side, and almost always a proposal gets approved. I think one of the other big things is, and I'm sure somebody's asking themselves this question, okay, I get it that it's a bonus to go with a licensed insolvency trustee uh, to deal with my debts and to deal with the, the people who are wanting my money or, or whatever. Um, the, one of the big differences, though, is how do, how, do, how do they get paid? How does a licensed insolvency trustee get paid? And how does a, a debt counseling program get paid? Because there's, there's got to be a difference between those two. Oh, there definitely is, Elaine. So uh, starting with a credit counseling plan, for example, so you're paying back 100% of the debt. And then sometimes there's a small administration fee or education fee that might be tacked on to that. You know, sometimes it's 25 or $50 a month. It's usually not significant. And some people find, okay, there's good value for that. But where the credit counselor really makes their funds um, is they get a commission from all the creditors who are getting their money paid back. They often pay roughly 22% of a commission back to the credit counseling firm to, you know, thank them for helping them not have to 
get a collector involved and for getting them all their money back. So you need to realize when you're dealing with a credit counselor, they're actually getting the bulk of their money from the creditors, from the people that are essentially at odds with you. And it's kind of tough to wear that, that many hats where you're working on behalf of the creditors getting paid by them, but trying to also do the best for, for the individual in front of you. Because if a credit counselor knows, hey, this person would be better served by a consumer proposal than a debt management plan, I'd like to hope they would refer that person to a credit uh, to a, a consumer proposal, but they would make no money at that point. So the kind of the, the motivation can be at odds there to what's better for the client. When you're dealing with a trustee with a consumer proposal, you pay nothing above and beyond what you can afford to repay on the debt. So again, if it was a $20,000 debt and you're offering $6,000 back as a settlement at roughly 30%, and you'd pay that at $100 a month over 60 months or 150 over 40 months, whatever works, that's all that you pay. The cost of administration are all set by the federal government, and they're deducted from your payments before the creditors get their share. So of the $6,000 that you're paying in, creditors will get the lion's share of that, you know, close to 80% or so. The balance goes for government fees, trustee fees, counseling and so on and so forth. But to you, the individual, you will never get a bill from a trustee. You'll never get a bill for a consultation, for a call if you have a question, if we have to help stop a wage seizure or a garnishment. Everything is included in the cost you pay with the proposal. And if I can just make one more point on fees, uh, it's nothing that you ever need to pay up front. So if you're doing a proposal at 100 or $150 a month, you just start making that payment after the trustee has put the proposal together, spent a bunch of time with you. Um, you never have to pay an invoice upfront or any large upfront fees. You just start making your proposal payments once you file the documents. Cool. Now we've got about a minute and a half left in this segment, Blair. Can we, can we talk about the things or the considerations you suggest people keep in mind when they're weighing their options at looking at both of these? Because it's a really terrific list for folks to really think about before they make that decision. Yeah, I think it's good to, to finish here, Elaine. You know, first off, the big question, what can you afford? You know, can you afford to repay 100% of your debt uh, if the interest was stopped? Is that the solution that you need? Okay, if so, credit counseling might be an appealing option. Uh, most of the people that I deal with, they're in my office because they can't afford to repay 100% of the debt, even if the interest was stopped. Or if they could afford to repay 100%, it's that significant hardship to themselves and to their family. Um, so if you can afford to repay 100%, okay, maybe that's a reason to consider a, a credit counseling plan. But if you can more afford to pay 30 to 50, 20 to 40%, something in that range, a consumer proposal is definitely an option worth exploring every time. And if it's the case there's any government debt at all involved or any legal actions taking it against you if wages are being seized or you're being threatened to be garnished, that's when you absolutely need the protection of a consumer proposal administered through a licensed insolvency trustee. And it might just take an hour to figure this out, to get started, to become debt-free. Can you imagine just an hour? And very easy to do. Connecting with the professionals at Sands & Associates, you can book your free non-judgmental consultation. I'll give you the phone number one more time. It's 1-800-661-3030. Or check out the website, sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. So we're doing one of these comparison pieces, the pros and cons of filing bankruptcy 
over choosing a credit counseling repayment plan. There's a bunch of them, and we're going to go through them. Credit counseling plans and personal bankruptcy, pretty common debt management options that folks consider if you're in a situation uh, and you're looking for a good solution. The good news about this segment is Blair is going to explain the differences between the two solutions. So can we start, Blair, just talking, sort of give a bit of a brief overview of what a credit counseling repayment plan looks like and what a personal bankruptcy filing looks like? Yes, certainly, Elaine. I'm happy to do the segment today because a lot of people have heard a lot about credit counseling before, and maybe they've heard a bit about personal bankruptcy. Um, but oftentimes, we don't know the nuts and bolts. We don't know the actual details, how they might apply to us in our situation. And how do you choose one over the other? What's going to be your better remedy? So I think today, contrasting the two remedies should help people you know, make a good, informed decision for themselves or for someone else in their life that might be having some trouble. So there's a lot of different types of credit counseling programs, but most them end up doing the same um, eventual output, which is they consolidate all of your eligible debts. So hopefully all of your debts, but we'll talk about that a little bit later, um, into one informal settlement plan. So generally, a credit counselor is going to put together an offer of a repayment plan to your eligible creditors, and they'll approach them on your behalf. So you don't need to go to each person you owe money to. The credit counselor will get your authorization to go creditor by creditor, contact them and see what type of settlement can be made. Your creditors can choose to accept or reject it on an individual basis. Uh, what's important to know is that a credit counseling plan might not cover all of the debts that you have. Um, usually it'll help with credit cards or lines of credit, um, but anybody that won't agree to work with them, even some credit card companies might say, well, we're not interested in this type of settlement. Um, you know, they're just not going to be part of your plan and might need to be repaid separately. Um, and if there's any government debt at all involved, that's always going to be outside of a credit counseling plan. But assuming all of your debt is something that can be eligible to be helped with a credit counselor, what they're going to do is work out for your repayment plan over a period of a maximum of five years that will require you to pay back 100% of your debt but it's going to stop all of the interest, stop the finance charges, and then on an agreement basis, stop the creditors from contacting you or threatening you to take you to court or seize your wages or things like that. So it gives you the means if you're able to pay back all of your debt in full, 100% of what's outstanding, a credit counseling plan will give you about five years to make all those payments. You don't have to, uh, to restructure the debts in any other way. So that's how credit counseling typically works. Uh, if it's a personal bankruptcy, it's a very different legal remedy because where a credit counseling plan is based on considering what's your ability to repay, you know, how much debt is it, divide that debt by 60 monthly payments, you can kind of estimate your, your payment there. Uh, where a personal bankruptcy, it's a federally legislated legal process. So it's not an informal agreement. There's no negotiations here. It's something that's enshrined in law that allows an honest but unfortunate individual to discharge all of their debts basically leave all the debt behind and start again financially. And with a bankruptcy, you don't need any permission from your creditors or from the court to declare bankruptcy. You can't be prevented from getting this relief just because your creditors want to be paid. And it's one of only two debt management options in Canada, the other being a consumer proposal, that can cover virtually all types of debt. So all of your general consumer debt, the car, credit cards, the lines of credit overdrafts and loans, as well as your government debts like tax debt, student loans, ICBC, um, and other debts like that owing to government. So they're different in formality versus informality, and where one is a repayment plan, the other is your chance to restructure yourself completely and eliminate all of the debts. 
Yeah, there's a lot of differences. Um, and, and listen, if you want to uh, stop right now from listening any further and know that you need to take some action and, and either call Sands and Associates at 1-800-661-3030 or go to their website, uh, sands-trustee.com and check out and, and, and look at a few more questions and answers, some great answers on there. They've got pages of good information and then take some action. That's a, a terrific thing, uh, for you to do at this point. The the other big difference between the two of them is just the protection that one offers where the other one doesn't. That's right, Elaine. That's such a key difference. When you're doing a credit counseling program, there's no legal enforcement. There's no basically standing that a counselor has to compel anybody to do anything. So if a, if a creditor doesn't want to work with your credit counseling plan, they don't have to. They can continue to contact you. They can pursue collection actions, court actions against you. Uh, you know, usually creditors that are part of your plan, they're going to you know agree to take their payments and not take anything else against you. Um, but be aware that not everyone is going to agree from the start, or they could even drop out partway through if they said, well, no, we think this person can actually pay more than what they're doing, and we don't want to be a part of this plan anymore. So it's again, it's very informal, and it's by negotiation. With a personal bankruptcy, it's by law. The day that you file a personal bankruptcy, all contact from your creditors has to cease upon filing without negotiation. Um, if I hear that one of my clients is getting calls days after bankruptcy, that's the first call I make in my day, and I keep calling until everyone understands federal law is at play here. It's not me being a bad guy, a good guy, or you being nice or not. This is what you must do. So creditors generally understand federal law takes priority over anything they can do to try to get paid. So that's what's called a stay of proceedings, and that gives you the breathing room, right? A lot of people, they just feel so beaten down by owing debt, by getting collection calls, you know, more than 10 times a day in some cases. So getting all that to stop to give you peace of mind um, that definitely can have some value to it and even more important than that than sometimes you know the the physical and, and psychological impact the financial impact you might have already been sued for your debts you might be having your wages being seized or assets being seized or being threatened as soon as you file for bankruptcy all of that comes to a grinding halt if you're being taken to court for payment that stops essentially the next appearance when you say i've seen i've sought relief under the bankruptcy act and everything comes to a hold it's so it's that's such a good thing to mention too. I just feel like a licensed insolvency trustee really has your back uh, against your debtors, against your um, just that awfulness that you feel, the stress of being in this situation. Uh, somebody like Blair and his team are going to be working with you and for you in the broadest sense of the word. They're actually protecting you from all kinds of things and helping you get on that that uh, that good path to being debt free. Um, I also love this, the rule of 60 that we're supposed to talk about at this point when it comes to costs and, and fees, et cetera. And it's such a good rule for people to take a look at their stuff with. Yeah, so the rule of 60 uh, is when you're trying to estimate if I could do a credit counseling plan, if I've got you know enough debt trouble that that wouldn't be viable for me, just take your unsecured debt, so take your credit cards, lines of credit, income taxes, whatever it might be, or sorry, not income taxes, credit cards, lines of credit, um, things along those lines, divide it by 60 and then say, is that a payment I could afford? Because that's essentially what your credit counseling payment is going to be. So if it was $30,000 of debt, divide that by 60, well, it's a $500 a month, give or take, that's what you're going to be looking at um, to deal with, with your debts in a credit counseling plan. Um, a bankruptcy is 
completely different in terms of how your payments are calculated. So where credit counseling is based on you paying back a certain uh, amount of debt at 100% repayment, a personal bankruptcy, it's essentially divorced from the amount of the debt. So it could be a $10,000, $100,000, or a million dollars worth of debt. Uh, What you have to pay in a bankruptcy is all driven by your income. And the government sends out each year what are the low-income guidelines to determine essentially which scenario someone would fall into if they were to file for bankruptcy. And in 2021, it's roughly around $2,400 of take-home income per month um, as a single person. If someone is earning less than that, regardless of the amount of their debt, if they're in bankruptcy, it's going to be over in nine months. So again, compare that to a five-year repayment plan and credit counseling. The bankruptcy is over in nine months. And what they pay, regardless of the amount of the debt, is $200 for each of those nine months for a total of $1,800. And that's all they would have to pay as part of the bankruptcy proceeding. The thing I want to throw in here, and I know this is right at the end of the the information for this segment, Blair, is that if somebody's listening and going, okay, well, uh, uh, credit counseling's not going to work for me and bankruptcy, I don't think I need to do that. Also, the licensed insolvency trustee is the only one that can walk you through a consumer proposal as a as another third option for you uh, if you're really wanting to take some action here and, and are, aren't comfortable with the other two. Yeah, that's exactly right, Elaine. So anytime you sit down with a trustee, we're going to evaluate the personal bankruptcy. We're also going to help you understand how a consumer proposal might work. And if you're not sure what a consumer proposal is, just keep listening to our show. We talk about it very regularly. It's a very powerful debt option. I'll also throw in the fact that you can check it out on their website, sans-trustee.com. And if you're wanting to take some action, book that appointment. You can do that online, or you can give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 for that first consultation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. So government debt, man, that can be a whole bunch of different things, but that's got to be the number one concern, whether you're a business owner or it's just your personal debt and you've, you haven't paid income taxes or student loans or you're behind on those things, this is such a great segment because Blair's going to break down ways that you can manage your government debts, debts and even stop somebody from garnishing your wages, which, boy, oh, boy, these days, any day, but especially these days, would be really, really challenging to have to deal with. So let's talk about some of the different types of government debt first um, that you come across, Blair, when you've got people in your office and they're talking about their situation. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, you hit, you said it well, Elaine, that a lot of people are very scared when they owe the government money. It becomes, you know, right front, forefront of their mind because the government's the most powerful creditor that's out there. They don't need to take you to court before they can take really significant actions that can impact you. So if people get behind on payments to the government, uh, they get very scared, very anxious, wondering, you know, when the next shoe is going to drop, what's going to happen to them next. And there's a number of ways these types of debts can arise. So what we typically see as a few broad categories. So first off, a big one of tax debt, and that can include a bunch of things. You know, sometimes it's personal income taxes. So maybe the person was self-employed or pulled out some RRSPs and, you know, just didn't pay enough tax back. And then when they file their taxes, they get an assessment that says, oh, well, now you owe this amount of money that wasn't paid during the year. Uh, GST debt from a business is something that we see a lot of as well. Even if you haven't registered for GST, if you've tripped over the $30,000 revenue category and definitely get your own advice on this, uh, you could be assessed a GST debt, even if you've never collected it. Most often people have been collecting GST, but then there's been a tough time in the business and they've 
had to use those funds for operations rather than remit them to the government. Uh, sometimes there are payroll remittances, so source deductions that should have been withheld from employees. Um, they weren't remitted to the government, and that becomes a debt. Uh, sometimes things like student loans, whether it's national or provincial student loans, uh, it could be an overpayment of benefits. Um, so definitely uh, relevant right now is CERB. So we're hearing from a lot of people, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, they were perhaps overpaid or not eligible. Um, and now they're starting to get some notices. Well, hey, you, we're assessing you that needs to be paid back. Um, ICBC debt, obviously near and dear to us in BC, our public insurer, um, that can be a type of government debt um, that can be very difficult to deal with outside of seeing a trustee. And then finally, MSP premiums. So even though medical services plan haven't had to pay premiums for quite some time now over the last couple of years, if there's a previous debt, that still is due and payable and can come back to haunt you here. Wow, that's a lot to consider. And it really, um, most of these touch everybody except for maybe a student loan, but uh, something to consider. Some really important pieces of government debt that you need to pay attention to. So what if what happens then if, if you end up in a situation where you can't keep up the repayment obligations on these types of debts? Well, the government's got a number of things they can they can do, and sometimes they'll employ a few of these tactics or just one. But first off, interest and penalties. Um, so even what seems like a manageable balance to CRA, that can grow over time uh, with interest that compounds daily and penalties, especially if you're late on filing or things like that. Uh, what CRA can do in addition to interest and penalties is freeze your bank account. And if you want to talk about getting your attention, well, suddenly when you go to pay your rent or pay an online bill and you find you can't access your funds, you know, the funds are still there, but you won't be able to use them if CRA has frozen the account. Uh, CRA often does that as kind of a shot across the bow saying, you know, you need to file these tax returns. We're going to unfreeze your account once it shows that you've done these. But sometimes they will also seize the balance of that account if it's a case the debt is so significant. And that can happen with no warning to you and can be, you know, absolutely shocking and can really um, derail your financial plan. Um, in addition to just seizing bank accounts, um, CRA can seize assets. So where this most commonly happens is they can place a charge or a lien on your residence or on some other property that you might have. And then once that lien is registered, it's like you've got another mortgage there. So if you sell your house, uh, your mortgage holder gets paid out and then CRA to the value of their lien also gets paid out before you see any money. Uh, and the last thing that they do, and again, talk about being dramatic, is they can garnish your wages. So generally, CRA can take 30 to 50 percent of your wages in the province of B.C. I've seen them go as high as 100 percent, even on pension amounts. Uh, if a person is, you know, extremely non-compliant and they really want, you know, to teach them a lesson, so to speak. But you can imagine having your income cut off at the source. That could just be debilitating right away. So we're going to talk about the next best step to take. But first, I just want to throw in, if you want to take some action now, give Sands & Associates, you can do it two ways, either give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, of course, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, the second is go to their website, sands-trustee.com. It's filled with good information, and it's also a way for you to access an office and make an appointment and get set up. So let's talk about the two options of, of what you can do or who you can talk to to take take this kind of debt on and, and resolve it. Yeah, and just before we get to that, Elaine, there's one sure. pitfall I just want to highlight for folks here because I've definitely seen people do something that they thought was working to their best efforts or to their best outcome, and it ends up coming back to, to haunt them. So one really big pitfall to avoid is don't transfer assets out of your okay. name. 
So if you've got a debt to CRA and you say, well, I've got these assets, I don't want CRA to come after them, I'm going to put them in my spouse, uh, parent, child, grandparent, whichever someone else's name, just be aware CRA can undo all of those transfers. They can pursue the person you've given the assets to, and you can really enlarge the problem at that point. So don't go rearranging things to try to outsmart CRA. Uh, they will win in the end if, if you think you can outsmart them. So just wanted to give that warning there. Yeah, no, that's good. Thanks for including that. So what's the option, uh, like a consumer proposal, which we often talk about? Is that the best option in this situation? Well, there's two options, and both of them are accessible through a licensed insolvency trustee. And kind of the, the benefit of a consultation is figuring out which option is going to fit best for your situation. But a consumer proposal can be a great option if you've got an amount owing to the government. You can afford to pay off a reasonable portion of it, you know, maybe 30 to 50% of it over time. But you can't handle being garnished. You can't handle your wages being seized. Uh, and you just need that time. You can't come up with the money up front. A consumer proposal can be just a lifesaver. Because once you're in a consumer proposal, if anything's been done against you, it has to stop. So if your wages are getting seized, the day you sign that proposal, the trustee's going to put a stop to that wage seizure. If CRA is threatening to put a charge against your house, the day you sign that consumer proposal, CRA can no longer put a charge against your house. So if it's a situation where you can pay off a reduced balance, a proposal can be just a lifesaver. If it's the case, you've been assessed just a massive amount of debt and your income is nowhere near going to allow you to pay off, you know, even a quarter of the debt over time, well, then a personal bankruptcy can be the option that's going to get you back to zero um, at a reasonable cost and a reasonable time frame. For 80% of people in Canada, bankruptcy runs just for a nine-month period, um, and any amounts owing to the government are typically dischargeable in a bankruptcy, which means they go away. When you finish the bankruptcy, you don't owe the government any money, and it's amazing how many people think, I file bankruptcy if I have tax debt, I Bankruptcy deals with the credit cards, deals with the lines of credit, but the tax that comes out the other side, that's not the case in Canada. Both a consumer proposal and a personal bankruptcy fully deal with tax debt. And I just want to include, too, that the, the beauty of going to see somebody like Blair at a li- uh, as a licensed insolvency trustee is that they'll work with you to figure out, is it consumer proposal or is it bankruptcy? Because they're, because those two options are two options that only a licensed insolvency trustee can actually facilitate for you in this country. Yeah, and it doesn't take long, Elaine. It's inside of the first consultation. Anyone that we meet with, by the end of the meeting, we're giving them a very clear, you know, even on a spreadsheet saying, you know, here's the impact, here's the financial structure of a bankruptcy, here's what a consumer proposal could look like, the benefits, how you would take your next steps, and that people have a really clear decision they can make on how they want to proceed. Uh, And getting a proposal together can be done in a matter of a few days if it's urgent. People can take weeks, you know, to do all their research. But if your wages are being taken tomorrow, uh, we could probably have a proposal ready very quickly if that's what you needed. Nice. And there's, yeah, so many benefits to going to uh, checking in with Sands and Associates and talking to them about your situation. Uh, you're listening to Dollars and Cents. If you want to go to their website, sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.